Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. As it is with the end of every year, the beginning of a new year brings about the promises and possibilities of change, growth, reimagining, and new visions by most people. So it is with the end of 2020, which has been one of the most challenging years that most people have ever experienced. Introduced into our experience during 2020 was the deadly coronavirus pandemic and the escalating political tensions which were orchestrated by the political manipulation of Donald Trump. It is likely that the effects of these realities will continue to impact us during 2021. Added to these critical issues are the ongoing concerns which African-Americans and people of color regularly confront, like income disparity and inequality, racial discrimination, police misconduct, inferior education, health disparities, lack of and inadequate housing, criminal justice reform, and many others. On January 1st, we turn the corner again. And as we do every year, we seek to assess what do we need to do to improve ourselves and our communities in the upcoming year. Traditionally, we look back to see what went wrong. And then we look forward to what corrective actions that we need to take in our efforts to protect, defend, and improve our growth and development. Tonight, we will make our first attempt at discussing a possible 2021 agenda, which can move us forward individually and collectively. For that discussion, we are joined by attorney Jessica Holmes, the former chair of the Wake County Board of Commissioners and a recent candidate for the North Carolina Secretary of Labor. We are also joined by Reginald Woods II, a second year student at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And we are happy to have them joining us for this discussion uh, this evening. So welcome to the Legal Legal Review. I'm very happy to be here. Yes, thank you for having me. Well, let me, let me just start out, I guess, with a point of uh, personal privilege, uh, if, if, if I'm allowed to do so. But to uh, Commissioner Holmes, even though you're the former commissioner, you still my commissioner, since you represented me uh, when you were on the board. I, I, I want to thank you for your contributions that you have made and the accomplishments that, uh, that you've achieved 
during your tenure on the uh, board of uh, commissioners and during your run for secretary of, uh, of labor. And I, I, I note that as a county commissioner, you were the youngest in history to achieve that status. And as a candidate for secretary of labor, you were the youngest to run for a council of state uh, position. And in both of those, you represented us well. Uh, and I go back with you for a while, all the way to the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, uh, where you were a strong advocate and voice for African-Americans. So I want to start the new year out by thanking you for the courage that you had to uh, step forward and to be our representatives in those, uh, in those areas. And you uh, represented uh, all of us admirably and the people responded. And even though you didn't win as Secretary of Labor, you won in so many other ways because you have created a path that uh, I think is gonna benefit not only you, but all African-American women who dare to step out uh, in the uh, future. So that's my point of personal privilege. And- uh, Attorney Joyner, I just wanna uh, thank you for that. I'm very proud of, um, in my time as a county commissioner to have really made strides, particularly in areas of affordable housing, um, food insecurity and education, particularly early childhood development. Um, all of those issues were particularly near and dear to my heart. You know, um, in terms of affordable housing, being someone who experienced homelessness as a child. Um, when it comes to food insecurity, um, someone who grew up on food stamps. Um, and when it came to education, being a first generation college student. Um, so I took all of my personal experiences and tried to make those areas better um, for the people that came behind me. And while I wasn't successful um, in my run for labor commissioner, um, I take great pride in elevating issues like the fact that we still desperately need an increase to the minimum wage and that there are many inroads to be made in North Carolina as it relates to workers' rights. But I've, I've said this um, many times and I believe it to this day, um, leadership is not a title, it's not a position. And so my leadership on these issues in the community will continue. Um, whether I'm in office or whether I'm out of office or regardless of what titles I hold. Right. And you. let me just, yeah, add and echo Irv's uh, acknowledgement of appreciation. Um, you have not only served as a role model for the young women, but also those of us uh, of a particular age. Um, it's, it's so encouraging and wonderful for um, black women in particular, but also young and old, older uh, black men and people of all ethnic persuasions to see someone who is so incredibly dedicated. And I also want to thank you for always being so willing to be a guest on this show. You always add such valuable insight and knowledge. And I know that you will continue to make yourself available um, for our wonderful audience. So just thank you again for, for all that you have done and that you continue to do.
Well, let me uh, just kind of take off from that to get right into uh, our discussion. And uh, since uh, Commissioner Holmes, you've been beaten throughout 2020 and you bear the bruise, bruises uh, of that, uh, we're gonna start uh, with you and then go to uh, Mr. Woods. But could, could each of you uh, just briefly describe two or three of the most critical issues that African-Americans faced in 2020 and how, well, we'll talk about that after you have described from your perspective what the two or three most critical issues were that we faced. So uh, Commissioner Holmes, we'll start with you. I'll start with two issues, both of which are very much intertwined. Um, you've already noted one when you um, start talking about the coronavirus or COVID-19 um, and the reality that people of color have been disproportionately impacted by the virus. And, and moreover, not only have we been disproportionately getting sick from the virus, but have um, been disproportionately dying from the virus. And um, in that same breath, um, so my first issue is health, um, as it relates to the health of black and brown people related to the coronavirus. And the second issue is intertwined in that it's regarding the economic impact of the pandemic on the, the pocketbooks of black and brown people. Uh, and again, these are so tightly intertwined because oftentimes when we talk about essential workers or frontline workers, you know, those are black and brown people, um, which have, you know, made us even more susceptible to, to the virus. So I'll just start with those two issues. All right. Mr. Wood. Yes, sir. So um, I'll piggyback off of uh, Ms. Holmes's statement. Um, I will agree that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and the mishandling of this pandemic and how it has affected um, black and brown communities uh, would be the first and foremost uh, issue that we faced in 2020. Um, the second issue I would state is one that we um, as African-Americans are um, not uh, new to, uh, and that would be the rise in white supremacy um, and hate groups. Um, and I think uh, one thing for certain, um, the fact that the president of the United States has, in a sense, fanned the flames of hate, um, it, it has made this more difficult. Um, and, and that kind of segues into, for me, my third uh, point or issue would be the 74 plus million individuals who actually voted to keep this president in office. Um, whether they may justify this based upon, you know, the economy or things of that nature, the underlying issue for many people uh, of color is that they are still supporting an outright racist. Well, now I'm going to just kind of circle back uh, to, to, to both of you again with respect to those, those issues to see how do you see those issues reverberating in 2021? Is there a resolution that's possible in 2021 or are these issues that will continue to languish with us throughout uh, the year and possibly into the years to follow? So Commissioner, you wanna start us with that? When I talked about health, um, I'll, you know, the, the resolution, so to speak, as it specifically relates, relates to the um, coronavirus, 
is the vaccine. Um, who's going to be in line to get the vaccine? Um, we see even right now, um, the situation where um, the distribution you know, has not been what we anticipated that it would be. And then you also have to look at the reality of whether or not we as black and brown people will trust the vaccine and will be willing to, um, to get the vaccine. When you look at some of the historical issues that black and brown people have faced, um, when it comes to trusting, um, you know, vaccines and trusting, you know, medical care. When you look at things like, for example, like the Tuskegee study um, that involved, um, you know, men of color being injected with syphilis. Um, I've heard that come up multiple times when people argue against um, why black and brown people should, should trust getting this vaccine. And so, you know, distribution is gonna be an issue as it relates to the, the, to the vaccine, but you also have an issue of trust and whether black and brown people will trust, even if their name is called or even if their number comes up, so to speak, if, if they're going to trust getting the vaccine. So I think that's gonna be one of the most interesting issues of 2021 as it relates to the vaccine. Um, another issue, quite frankly, is that there's an additional new strain of the virus that has made itself apparent that apparently is not impacted by the current vaccine. Um, you know, some of the arguments I've heard about not taking it is how quickly it was produced. And, you know, not to mention the distribution being an issue. So the health of black and brown communities is always going to be a continuing conversation. And if we're keeping it real, we also have to acknowledge that there were disparities and inequities in the healthcare system well before COVID-19 existed. So we're going to see a continuation of those types of issues. And in North Carolina, you know, we're going to see the conversation emerge again about expanding Medicaid. You know, I think that is going to be critical in the conversation in addressing inequities in healthcare um, related to COVID and inequities that are not related to COVID. Um, as it relates to the economy and how quickly we can get that going and, you know, getting all of our businesses up and running, um, that's going to be very much dependent on whether people can follow directions. You know, you still have people who don't believe in science, who won't wear a mask. You know, there's still people who don't wash their hands. Um, and so we have very simple instructions that could have slowed the spread. But, you know, all it takes is, you know, for a handful of people who don't believe in science to, to keep the virus vibrant. And that's what we're seeing right now. Um, so as it relates to the economy, that is, you know, how quickly we're able to get that going, you know, will continue to depend on everyone following directions and, and following science. Okay. Mr. Wood. Yes, sir. So um, I, I think America is living in a glass house and uh, throwing rocks. Uh, I think it's clear that we, we have many issues that uh, continue to resurface um, throughout the years that we have just not addressed. Um, starting with, you know, uh, racism in, in this country, uh, as I spoke to before, it's an issue that we just have yet to fully address. Um, I know James Baldwin, he had a quote, he said, the reason people think, think it's important to be white is that they think it's important not to be black. And so when you have um, a segment of society that truly believe 
that another segment of society is less than simply because of the color of their skin, it becomes very difficult to find a middle ground and understanding and how to and a, and a way to move forward. Um, and so I think that's going to come come forward with uh, the younger generations as well. I think uh, we have an obligation and a duty to find different ways to bridge that gap. But I will say, though, that it is um, a bit frustrating. Um, we've been talking about this for so long um, and we have yet to actually find a solution for this problem. Um, the second thing with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, um, I, I believe it, it starts with um, re, re, um, reallocating and uh, uh, creating the, uh, the uh, it was uh, a unit, the COVID-19 response unit uh, created in 2018 by the Obama administration in response to the, the Ebola uh, outbreak. Um, so I think those are uh, some things that we could address, um, but we'll just have to wait until 2021 to see uh, what actually happens. Uh, this I would just like to support what Mr. Woods is saying in terms of the issues related to racism. And it's not just racism. You know, quite frankly, if I know someone who's racist, you know, and they stay on their, you know, end of, you know, they stay in their corner and I stay in mine, we're fine. Um, the issue with racism right now is that it's literally killing us. Um, we just recently learned in the shooting of um, Jacob Blake, um, yet another name to add to the list of um, names that we should say. Um, you know, he was in a situation where he was shot several times in the back in Wisconsin while his three young sons were in the back seat of his SUV. Um, so, you know, racism is not a, a passive issue. Um, you know, it is literally, you know, the issue of police brutality. It seems like every other week it's difficult to, to keep up with the names. Um, and so, unfortunately, I do believe in, in 2021 that unless or until something is done that we will continue to add names to this list, um, you know, from George Floyd to Breonna Taylor, now Jacob Blake, thank God he has the opportunity to live to tell his story. Um, but, you know, to take racism further, we've got the issue of, of police brutality and interactions with um, police officers, with black and brown people. And like I said, you know, racism isn't just in the streets. Um, you know, it is it is seen in our housing crisis. Um, it's evident in our healthcare pra um, practices, and it's equipped. It's also seen in our interactions with um, with police. Okay. But it's, it's literally permeating like every aspect of our society. And I just wanted to um, support uh, what you know Mr. Woods was saying when he was talking about how racism is, uh, and unfortunately, will continue to be a top issue in twenty one. Well, and with that, we're going to take our break uh, right now. Uh, this is the Legal Legal Review, and we are discussing uh, going forward into 2021 and uh, what it looks like for uh, African Americans. And we're going to take our break. want you to uh, stay with us, and we'll be right back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. The impacts of the pandemic from last year, particularly among Black, Latino, Indigenous, and immigrant households, remains a widespread issue as we begin the new year. Millions of households are still not caught up on their rent or mortgage payments, and it is estimated that American renters owe billions in back rent. 
In September, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a temporary halt in residential evictions to prevent the further spread of COVID-19. Under the order, a landlord or owner of a residential property is prohibited from evicting a covered tenant from any residential property in any jurisdiction. This order does not relieve any individual of any obligation to pay rent, make a housing payment, or comply with any other obligation under a tenancy, lease, or similar contract. The CDC order was set to expire on December 31, 2020. However, the expiration date of the order was extended to January 31, 2021. This means that a landlord, owner of a residential property, or other person with the legal right to pursue an eviction or possessory action cannot evict for non-payment of rent any covered person from any residential property in any U.S. state or U.S. territory through the end of this month. More information is at cdc.gov, ncsha.org, and cbpp.org. Virtual Justice at NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and a legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us. As we talk about uh, movement into 2021 and what does the environment look like for African-Americans during that time, we're speaking with uh, Reginald Woods, who is a, a second year law student at North Carolina Central University uh, School of Law and uh, former commissioner uh, Jessica Holmes, uh, who is uh, joining us as, uh, as freshly wounded and bruised candidates in the political spectrum, uh, one with a lot of uh, experience in the world as we explore uh, those issues from 2020 that uh, will carry over likely into uh, 2021 and, uh, and beyond. And they've uh, introduced a uh, number of uh, different issues, all of them uh, interrelated. Uh, these are not singular issues by any stretch of the imagination. But what I wanna just raise with uh, each of you uh, now is the uh, engagement in uh, political participation. Uh, and we, we we came out of a very uh, tumultuous year uh, with a lot of uh, tension, a lot of uh, uh, threats to the uh, progressing democracy, uh, which we have been led to believe exists in this, uh, in this country. Uh, what challenges do you see lying in front of us with respect to uh, protecting, defending, or promoting uh, a progressive uh, advances uh, toward uh, democracy uh, in this country, recognizing that we're not there uh, yet. And that has been made crystal clear by what has been happening uh, to us. But uh, how do you see our involvement going forward uh, in uh, the political system. Why don't we start with Mr. Woods on this one? 
Yes, sir. So um, I, I personally believe that speaking directly to the African American community, one thing that we need to truly focus on is not simply voting with the mentality of, I have to vote now because we're in a dire situation. I think voting out of fear um, sort of brings you back from the actual purpose of the electoral process. Uh, I think education is the most important thing, but being educated and not actually using this knowledge is worthless. So I think we also need to start um, engaging in this process more, meaning not just voting, but also running for these positions. Uh, I believe Ms. Holmes spoke to this earlier as far as um, African-American women doing the work. And I totally agree. What's going on in Georgia right now with Stacey Abrams and the efforts that she has put in in Georgia to basically change the entire electoral landscape of the United States overnight, it seems, is so commendable. Um, but I think for African-Americans, we can't just sit back and observe. We need to truly uh, get engaged on whether it's the general election, uh, midterms, midterms, whatever, local election, everything. We need to participate. We need to become involved. And we need to uh, collectively come together and establish a cohesive block uh, that will benefit us in the future. Mr. Woods, um, you know, well done in bringing up um, what has just recently happened in Georgia. Um, Attorney Joyner started off talking about the beating that we took here in North Carolina in 2020. And so I do think it's important that we give credit where credit is due in terms of what Stacey Abrams and Black Voters Matter, um, Fair Fight, and other groups and organizations have done in Georgia. And to also say congratulations to um, Senator-elect um, Warmock, and um, hopefully we can pull out, um, you know, two wins out of Georgia. That's, that's what it's looking like at this point in time. But in terms of, you know, something that we have not yet discussed that I believe will be the battle of 2021, and that is redistricting. Um, Irv, you talked about, you know, what can we do to protect our democracy? You know, what can we do to ensure progressive issues advance in North Carolina. And I believe the battle regarding those issues will be determined in redistricting. Unfortunately, as we all know, that when it comes to gerrymandering, that you know whoever writes or draws the new districts will determine who our lawmakers are. It shouldn't be the other way around. You know, people should determine who represents us. But unfortunately, with you know gerrymandering, um, all too often these districts are drawn to favor one party or another, which is why I support an independent independent redistricting commission. But that said, these districts will determine who our lawmakers will be, and these lawmakers will determine whether we expand Medicaid, whether we increase our minimum wage, whether we address our issue related to unemployment benefits, which is a laughing stock all across the country. But all of these issues will be played out in our, in our legislature. And going back to the, the whipping we took in 2020, um, it's not just the legislature that we should be concerned about. Our courts have been a savior of sorts. Um, you know, we all know the infamous quote of you know, African-American voters being targeted with surgical precision. Had it not been for the courts, 
that decision would not have been what it was. So we're now in a situation where not only have we not made as much progress as we wanted to make in the General Assembly, and now we will continue to have Republicans leading the redistricting process, but now we no longer have a chief justice that believes in justice when we lost Chief Justice Sherry Beasley. Um, and as of right now, Chief Justice Paul Newby has been sworn in as the new Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. So I think we're gonna be in a tight situation when it comes to redistricting. And I think we're gonna be in a tight situation when it comes to um, you know, hoping that our courts will be able to save us from whatever you know, nonsense our Republican-led General Assembly comes up with. So I, I think we're gonna be in a very tight situation um, when it comes to redistricting. And I think they're gonna be up to their same tricks you know, as it relates to gerrymandering and trying to minimize the voices of black and brown people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and Attorney Holmes, that raises in my mind the situation that Stacey Abrams found herself in. So Mr. Woods um, referenced the hard work that she did and so much of the um, wonderful result, depending on your political persuasion, the wonderful result that we see out of Georgia is because of what Stacey Abrams did after she lost the governor's race. Uh, Can you talk, um, and Reggie, let's have you start. Can you talk about how we can learn from uh, Stacey Abrams' approach and response to that loss and, and what we might be able to do in North Carolina to kind of channel her energy and, and what we can do about the uh, challenging situation that um, Attorney Holmes has laid out for us in terms of where we are in North Carolina. Absolutely, yes, ma'am. Um, so I, I think the, the most prominent thing that sticks out to me is uh, Stacey Abrams focused on a specific demographic in key areas in Georgia. And I think that was brilliant. So she focused on, uh, it was like Fulton County, DeKalb County, uh, Gwinnett County, uh, which are heavily populated uh, African-American communities um, in really suburbs of the Atlanta metro area. Uh, In North Carolina, uh, I believe Durham County voted for Biden, I think it was 80 something percent to 10 percent for Trump. Uh, So we have three counties as well that are similarly situated. So you have Mecklenburg County, which is Charlotte. You have Wake County, uh, which is Raleigh area. And then you have Durham County. Um, I believe even if you do run for office and let's say you do not win that position, you still have these similar uh, counties that are made up in in a similar fashion as to those other three counties in Georgia that I believe that uh, politicians could also target um, and get that that support uh, similar to how Stacey Abrams did in Georgia. And I think we also have to find more creative ways um, to reach out to younger voters here in North Carolina. Um, again, North Carolina is the South, just like Georgia, and I think we have a chance and an opportunity to do the same thing. Attorney Holmes, what what are your thoughts? You 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 know laid it out uh, very well in terms of the consequences of the 2020 election and the challenges that we have. How can we uh, take this um, the, the loss? and turn it around so that we gain some energy and the next election, certainly for the General Assembly, which will occur in two years, 
is more reflective of the citizens of North Carolina? I want to start by addressing what seems to be a misperception that Stacey Abrams somehow overnight flipped Georgia. Um, let's be clear, this was not some overnight sensation. Um, this was a 10-year plan to get to where we are. And so it's not going to take, it's not going to be an overnight sensation here in North Carolina either. Um, it's going to take patience, dedication, and diligence. Oftentimes we see organizations come into communities around presidential elections. We are going to have to consistently in off-year and on-year elections engage the community. Whether that be you know, the North Carolina Democratic Party having full-time organizers that are working in the state in between election cycles. But I think, you know, one thing that's that's not gonna work in North Carolina is when the establishment decides that they need some votes, then they start knocking doors in black and brown communities, or then they start investing funds in black and brown communities. Um, you know, I would say the key word to engagement that I think is lost in the conversation is consistency. Stacey Abrams has been consistent and she has kept her eye on the prize. Um, you can't keep your eye on the prize in election years and then take your eye off of it and then expect that people are gonna be there ready and fired up and ready to go. So, you know, just being consistent. And also when it comes to candidates, you know, I also call them out, you know, stop coming around to churches, you know, every time you're up for reelection. Um, you need, you know, your community needs to see that you're, you are out and about. And I know that's a bit more challenging when it comes to COVID, but there are ways to engage your community, whether that be virtual town halls. Um, there are safe ways to knock on doors. Um, but, you know, we've, we've got to stop this, you know, mindset that we're going to create change um, with some overnight sensation or some type of gimmick. We're going to have to do the work and we're going to have to do the work consistently. Well, let me just, just raise this question when, you, when you're talking about um, the results of uh, Stacey Abrams' work uh, in, uh, in, in Georgia. Uh, she was uh, the speaker of the, uh, of the House in the uh, Georgia legislature uh, before she ran for, uh, for governor. And uh, much of her work uh, in mobilizing and educating uh, voters uh, in Georgia uh, resulted from uh, her affiliation with the Democratic Party. Uh, is that a viable approach, though, in light of the fact that, uh, and I'm not talking about the work, I'm talking about the identification. Uh, since we have, for instance, in North Carolina, roughly a third of registered voters being independent. And then you probably have another third of the, uh, of the population that, uh, that's not even uh, registered. Uh, so when we talk about an ongoing plan, are we talking about something that is partisan-based or something that is community-focused? Uh, designed to uh, both educate 
uh, register and mobilize people, not only for the voting purposes, but also other political uh, accountability activities uh, that have to go on during the uh, intercession. I'll start. Um, I want to make sure that I give Mr. Woods the opportunity to, to jump in as well whenever he um, feels it's warranted. Um, but you, you bring up a good point in that a third of, roughly a third of voters are independent. And quite frankly, I believe that number will continue to grow as people get sick and tired of, of both parties. Um, I don't think the movement to make North Carolina a more progressive state I don't necessarily think it runs straight through the North Carolina Democratic Party. Um, I, I do believe that the movement will have to consist of the Democratic Party, but I also think there, there has to be some nonpartisan work in there as well. The, the movement will not strictly be partisan. I can assure you of that. Um, and quite frankly, I don't think NC, the North Carolina Democratic Party is up to the task. Um, as we learned from 2020, there's a lot of room for improvement within the party. Um, and the movement in Georgia wasn't strictly um, through their Democratic Party either. So I think there's going to have to to be a, a nonpartisan aspect um, to the movement in order for it to be successful, because quite frankly, people are, you know, the reason the independent category is growing is because people are sick and tired of, of both parties. All right, and with that, we're going to take our break and uh, want you to stay with us as we continue. Uh, this uh, discussion with uh, Jessica Holmes and uh, Reginald Woods on uh, where is it that we go uh, with African Americans into uh, 2021. So stay with us here on the Legal Legal Review and we'll be right back. Since its debut in August of 1995, WNCU 90.7 FM licensed to North Carolina Central University, has consistently fulfilled its mission to provide quality, culturally appropriate programming to public radio listeners in the Triangle area. The format of this listener-supported public radio station entertains the jazz aficionado, educates the novice jazz listener, and disseminates news and information relative to the community at large. For more information about WNCU 90.7 FM, please visit its website at www.wncu.org. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been the Legal Eagle Review. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney Jessica Holmes, the former chair of the Wake County Commissioner Board, and also a recent candidate for the North Carolina Secretary of Labor, and also Reginald Wood II, who is a second year law student here at North Carolina Central University School of Law. So right before the break, uh, Attorney Holmes was talking about the uh, coalition building, if you will, that uh, progressives at least will need to, to focus on if we wanna see some changes in, in North Carolina. Um, and Reggie, we wanna let you have an opportunity to respond to um, Irv's question, which, which was, 
you know, in terms of how we make progress in the state of North Carolina, should it be partisan based versus community focus? And as Irv was asking his question, it was reminding me of a point that's often raised by Reverend Barber, which is we need coalition building. And, and that means that you've got to look beyond party, you've got to look beyond race, and you've got to focus on issues that affect everyday people. Uh, Reggie, can you share your thoughts on how it is that, that we can get more progressive in North Carolina uh, without necessarily focusing on partisanship? Yes, ma'am. Um, so I definitely think that uh, the Democratic Party is uh, faced with an issue of where do we go from here? Um, we have new age Democrats like AOC, um, who many of the younger generation may align with, not all, but some. Um, and I think when you're talking about on the state and local levels, uh, I believe that there is a strong relationship and correlation between um, progressive politics and um, uh, social social organizations as well. And so I believe in the state of North Carolina, um, it's you know inherently conservative, but I do believe that there is room um, for change like that. Um, you spoke to Reverend Barber, I believe individuals like himself, um, you know, local NAACP chapters, uh, I believe they do have a role in um, creating change um, on these, on these uh, uh, state and local levels. Um, but I also believe that it, it comes from uh, where it has originated in the past, some of these churches. Um, the black church has been a staple for uh, social justice and social change uh, throughout years. Um, so I believe uh, the church has a role in that as well. Um, so I, I basically agree with what uh, Ms. Holmes has, has already um, stated. I think that it's going to become a, uh, it's not going to be an overnight process, um, but it is possible. Um, so, yeah. Well, let me just throw in an, another piece into this uh, puzzle because, uh, Jessica, a, a, as you know, uh, in order to participate in the political franchise, you have to have uh, economic backbone. Uh, you have to have money. Uh, in the uh, runoff, run, uh, runoff in, in Georgia, uh, it is reported that a half a billion dollars was spent just on uh, radio, uh, television ads uh, for, that, uh, for that campaign. And as you are well aware, it is a costly proposition when you uh, seek an office, whether it is statewide or whether it is district-wise, to be able to get your message out to, uh, to people, which brings up the issue of economic equality uh, within and among uh, people within our community, because one of our shortcomings is our inability or unwillingness to financially support uh, these political uh, campaigns. How do you see uh, the issue of this economic inequality being addressed that will put uh, people of color in a position that financially they can help uh, to finance the revolution that they are involved in? Um, unfortunately, you are correct um, in that the, the revolution will not be free. Um, in that you know, it costs money to, to win and, and run elections. And that's one of the reasons why um, candidates of color um, have difficulty winning, you know, races at the local level, at the state level, 
as we have seen, because you know we tend to not be able to tap into wealthier networks or necessarily tap into the, the donor class. So the fact that we are, you know, whether people call it that we're in a recession or not, um, economically people are hurting in ways that we haven't been hurt economically in a very long time. And we're going to need money um, to, to fund the revolution, to bring these groups together. But the good news is that, you know, thank goodness, whether you are a rich donor or whether you are someone who works in fast food and are fighting for 15, everyone has one vote. So one of the best ways that people can get involved is to exercise their one vote because I, Jessica Holmes, have the same power in my vote as Bill Gates, as the owner of Amazon. So while money will certainly play a, a factor in the equation, what we need more than anything are people who are tired of saying that they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Uh, we need bodies. We need people who are actually willing to go knock doors. Need people that are willing to, you know, take it old school to call on a phone tree, to call everyone in their Bible study, to call everyone in their church. So I would say as important as the money is, um, we need people who are dedicated, who are genuine about the work and who are going to be consistent with the work and, you know, are going to, you know, keep their eyes on the prize because it matters to them that much. Um, but, you know, as long as Citizens United um, is in place, money will continue to play a very unfortunate role in politics. And even right here in North Carolina, um, the max donation that a donor could give was $5,400. But the General Assembly has increased that amount um, for the next election cycle to $5,600, accounting for inflation which I'm a big fan of, accounting for increases due to inflation. But while they increase the amount that donors can give in the next election cycle, what they forgot to do in the meantime, since we all believe in inflation, is increase the minimum wage. And Ms. Holmes, uh, to, to emphasize one of the points that you had mentioned before, um, we need candidates that people are willing to put money behind. Um, and like you said before, not just a gimmick, not just a face out there, um, who wants to hold an office. Uh, and, and it's also important to mention that we're fighting for something that we, we haven't seen before. So whenever you're creating something new, it's always gonna be some pushback, some uncertainty. So that's why it's so important to have a candidate that uh, the community feels good about. Um, so I just wanted to uh, place that emphasis on that as well. And that you know, raises a question, um, Reggie. So uh, Attorney Holmes was talking about, you know, people getting involved. So we've got the financial involvement, and then you also have that sweat equity. And as uh, the the individual representing the uh, the young group uh, on this call or this um, this program, what message would you share with the younger generation? to motivate them or encourage them to get involved, even if they don't have the finances available to Attorney Holmes's point, getting involved uh, physically, um, you know, ringing doorbells, making phone calls, uh, what would your message be to them? Yes, ma'am. Um, so for me personally, what really 
set a fire in me was um, I would read about um, civil rights leaders like uh, John Lewis, for instance, and I would read about his story. Um, and I actually had the opportunity to meet him in person. And it was just, I can't even describe the level of like awe that I was in, you know? And um, I remember he was younger than me, you know, when he was at Fisk and he was a freedom writer and he was out here and he was truly involved in the movement. Um, so I think my first point I would say is get involved in the movement, just like you get involved into uh, sports or the latest thing that's on Instagram or whatever social media site, get involved because that's where your passion builds. When you uh, build this level of understanding about the political process or civil rights and social justice, you're, you, you never know. Your passion may lie right there. Some of the things that you are truly passionate about have been fought for by those same civil rights leaders. Um, so I will say get involved. Um, and to also, my second point would be never, never have the mindset that you, what you do won't uh, have an effect or, or doesn't have an effect uh, because it does. Uh, people are listening to you now more than ever. Um, and so utilize this time wisely. Um, be smart, uh, be strategic, and um, just seize the moment, seize the moment. Uh, Mr. Woods, you brought up um, the the late great um, Congressman John Lewis as a civil rights legend that he is. Um, but I will also note that we have right here on this call our very own civil rights leader and legend in Irv Joyner. And I, I say that to point out that we're always looking to other states and and to, to the television for who our leaders are. Um, you know. When you hear young people talk about leaders, they're talking about AOC. Um, you know, when you hear, um, you know, just like, you know, you were bringing up, the, you know, the late great um, Congressman John Lewis. We have those leaders right here in North Carolina. And I truly believe in my heart of hearts that North Carolina has everything that we need to build a progressive movement. But they're in separate pieces that we need to put together. We have our own civil rights legends who have marched, who have tried very important cases before our courts that have helped preserve our right to vote. We have young leaders and young candidates. Um, to, to put it simplistically, just think about some Legos. You know, we've got our legends like Irv Joyner who have set the foundation already for us. And then you've got young people who some days I consider myself uh, among them, but Mr. Woods, you make me feel a little old on this call. But you know, we have the young folks and we've got the old folks, but the foundation is already laid. And what we need to do is come together and build on top of the foundation that's already been laid for us. And what I mean by North Carolina already has everything we need. When I look at groups like the foundation of NAACP has led in North Carolina. You have newer groups like Advanced North Carolina. You have groups like Common Cause. Um, you have groups like El, El Pueblo. Um, you have groups like the League of Women Voters. This is what I mean when I say we need to build a coalition. But guess what? The, the foundation in North Carolina is already there. We don't have to start from scratch. There have been groups doing the work all along, but we've been doing it in our own little corners. Um, I also acknowledge, you know, groups like Democracy NC. Um, we have the, the 
foundation of the work that we need in North Carolina. We have just got to, like I mentioned, going back to the concept of Legos, we have all got to start building on the same plan together. Um, but we're never going to do it if we have young folks over here, you know, the legends over here, and everyone's doing their own thing. I think that was one of the most masterful things that Stacey Abrams did in Georgia. And although a lot of people are getting giving her the credit, if you listen to her talk, or if you listen to her in one of her interviews, she's gonna mention Black Voters Matter. She's gonna mention coalition. She's gonna mention the names of other people. Um, and so while Stacey Abrams is has certainly become the face of the movement, um, it, it certainly was not something that was built overnight by one person. And, and it is not a one person, um, one person movement that, uh, that we're dealing with. It's uh, a unity effort. Uh, and, and that brings to mind the fact that when we look at the statistics, we see for instance that in the uh, last campaign of uh, Donald Trump, that uh, more African-Americans voted for him than at any point in, uh, in history. That uh, here in uh, North Carolina, there were African-Americans who were elected as a part of the uh, conservative uh, 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 agenda. Uh, and even in Congress today, those who are fighting to uh, defeat or pulled a coup on the election of, uh, of Biden and, and, and Harris. Uh, there are African-Americans who were elected as Republicans that are a part of that uh, number. Why and how are we losing these people? I'll start with noting very specifically one black male who made history in North Carolina in the 2020 election, that is Mark Robinson, um, Lieutenant, now Lieutenant Governor uh, Mark Robinson, um, a black male Republican who made history in becoming the first black Lieutenant Governor in North Carolina's history. Um, you know, why are we losing um, these people? Um, why is it that even right here in North Carolina, Donald Trump was able to peel off a noteworthy percentage of black men in particular? Um, you know, if I had the correct answer to that, I'd probably be writing a book right now, but I'll do my best to, to share that. I do think there's been a, a failure within the Democratic Party when it comes to messaging. And making clear what the Democratic Party has to offer. And I will tell you that Donald Trump made a very targeted effort to increase his numbers specifically amongst black men. And he did so largely on a platform of talking about criminal justice reform. And you may have heard you know, about Donald Trump working with people like Kim Kardashian to um, release people that were unjustly incarcerated. And you know, he tried to make himself out to be you know, the president that cared about black men and was going to address um, you know, criminal justice reform when you know, that really couldn't be further from the truth. 
But, you know, I was listening to Black Urban Radio during the election cycle and would hear commercials um, from Donald Trump that were targeted towards Black people and targeted towards Black men. And he created a narrative that is simply not a reality in fact. Um, it's ironic that he increased his, you know, percentages amongst Black men, but he's the same president um, who has fanned the flames when it comes to racism and hatred. And because of his leadership, there have been more hate crimes in this country in during his term than probably in the previous past 20 years when you look, when you separate out time periods. So I think he did a wonderful job of creating a narrative, um, albeit a very false one, that um, was appealing to black men. Um, and quite frankly, I don't think the Biden team did enough in terms of targeting black men. Mm -hmm. So we have just a few minutes left. Uh, Mr. Woods, we're going to let you share your thoughts before we have to um, dip out. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, so I'll just make it short and sweet. I think um, what, one, one thing we have to understand is that Black people are not monolithic in anything, um, whether that's our vote or our preferences, anything. We are not a monolithic group. Uh, and so what drives one individual to vote uh, may be completely different to another. Um, so what led to that increase? I'm not, I personally do not know. Um, I can uh, guess some things, but uh, overall, I do not know. Um, but I do believe moving forward, as Ms. Holmes uh, spoke to, the Democratic Party has to do more uh, to speak to certain communities and demographics in order to uh, obtain them. Um, 2021 and moving forward will be different. Um, you cannot do the bare minimum and expect uh, the black vote. Uh, so um, I'll just leave it at that. All right. And we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our wonderful guest, attorney Jessica Holmes, the former chair of the Wake County Board of Commissioners and recent candidate for the North Carolina Secretary of Labor and Reginald Woods II, a second year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy and safe.